Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Digital Grocer, Mercatus's very own podcast, season four, episode 10. It is amazing to have you uh, joining us here again. I'm your host, Sylvain Perrier, president and CEO of Mercatus. And joining me, as always, is Mark Fairhurst, our VP of Marketing. Hey, folks. Mark, you are wearing some new headphones, which now you, I'm just really jealous. Okay. <laughs> I think I think for four seasons I had headphone envy, so so I figured I'd uh, I'd won you up. Here. Well, you you you've won up the industry maybe with those new Apple headphones. Yeah. So that's awesome. Yeah. That's great. Just don't tell my wife. I will not tell your wife. We'll have to do some sort of uh, some some sort of product review show. I think at at some point. Absolutely. <laughs> she doesn't watch the show, so I'm I'm pretty. Oh, I'm pretty you're safe. safe. You're safe. That's great. <laughs> okay. So. Mark, there's a lot going on in the industry uh, right now. So kind of two big things. Well, number one is, I don't know if you saw this, but this was reported at a progressive grocer. Amazon launched what they call the pay by palm technology. So if you're, if you're, and it's going to be launched at Whole Foods. So if you're yep. checking out, you magically wave your palm over something. I, I, I've seen pictures of it. And your, your biometrics are tied to your payment. So this, so this is a rehash of some technology that was originally launched between, I believe, 02 and then the demise of the economy in 08 by a company called Pay by Touch uh, out of San Francisco. They had raised over, call it 300 million US. I remember seeing the technology firsthand in some of the labs over at Food Lion in Salisbury, North Carolina. I know that Pay by Touch had done a massive launch across Cub Foods. And uh, the, t the technology was, had some challenges, and specifically when it got too cold or too humid outside. But this, I, not, this isn't new for Amazon. I, I don't see this as being really refreshing. It's just a rehash of what we've seen in the past. But I'm kind of curious where this is going to go. Is it, so it, is it actually your palm print? Like yeah. you have to register that on, really? Yeah, and apparently yeah. you can, for security purposes, you can do both. Wow. Yeah. It's, there's no there's no Logan's run chip in the in the palm, is there? <laughs> no, not yet. <laughs> okay, good. Sorry. <laughs> right. Oh my god, somebody's gonna oh don't even go there. I can just imagine what you could do. <laughs> that is crazy. Yeah. Now the one thing that you and I have been talking about, this is the second thing I just wanted to raise before we get into our core subject here, is we're seeing a lot of what I like to call pure e grocery entrants coming into the market. So these are Companies that are selling food online, it could be perishables, non-perishables, delivering them to consumers, and they are not leveraging the brick and mortar operators. They're going direct to consumer. And one right now that was just announced, Misfits Market, uh, they just revealed that they raised $200 million in Series C funding. That's insane. Yeah. Well, they did over 5 million deliveries in the last 12 months. So it's, it's a... Wow. And and all in, they've raised over three hundred and ten million. This puts a lot of pressure on the brick and mortar operators. It puts even more pressure on the companies like Instacart that, quite frankly, you know, they're bridging the gap by leveraging the retailers. It continues to point that they may have to go direct to consumer. And, and you know, we've all heard the rumors, the speculation that that's the next logical step. 
and to be honest, I mean, I think this is something that we should delve into. It's, yeah. um, you know, it's a little, it's always interesting to delve into speculation, but, you know, you, you got to think there's a strategy here and, you know, they're putting the building blocks in place. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. And, you know, the one thing that you can't deny, as we hear these stories about these organizations that are raising significant, significant amount of capital, that at some point they're going to have to prove a return on the investment to their shareholders, whether that's an IPO, uh, whether that's somebody buying them out, who knows what that where that's going to end up. But the one thing that really continues to baffle me as you know this industry continues to unfold, specifically around this level of technology is how are these organizations getting these valuations and out of thin air and how is this somehow is this is this these valuations are they really fundamentally based on revenue durability now i i've worked with the kpmgs and the pwcs of the world and you know you give them 3 years of financial statements discounted cash flow and then they come back and say oh your company is worth this much and you're like wow Okay, that's great. That's fine. But what about the underlying structure? What about the underlying principles of the business? What about the customers that are being serviced underneath the business and so on? I think there's a different way of thinking about this. Now, to help us kind of decode this, we've decided to invite a very special guest who can really help us understand, you know, what's the impact on the industry? What's the impact if you're an investor? And how does this affect our food retailers that are operating brick and mortar. So we've asked Daniel McCarthy. Daniel's an assistant professor of marketing at uh, Emory University. His research specialty is the application of leading edge statistical methodology to contemporary empirical marketing problems. His research interests include customer lifetime value, limited data problems, and the marketing finance interface. So he's popularized customer-based corporate valuations also known as CBCV. It's a methodology that drives any traditional valuation model off the underlying behaviors of the target company's customers. His work's been featured in major media outlets such as the Harvard Business Review, Wall Street Journal, Fortune, Barron's Inc. Magazine, The Economist, and CNBC. His research has been accepted and published in top-tier academic journals, and he has won numerous research awards. In addition to his role and responsibilities at Emory, Dan co-founded and was chief statistician for Zodiac, which I love that name, by the way. Uh, it's a predictive customers analytics SaaS firm that Nike acquired in March of 2018. And Dan has since co-founded uh, Teta, I'm probably not pronouncing this right, Equity Partners uh, to revolutionize how firms uh, value companies through CBCV. Dan, welcome to Digital Grocer. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, going back to the names, yeah, first, Zodiac was not actually our original name. Uh, it was uh, actually originally CLV Metrics, and this is kind of obviously a segue into what we'll be talking about today. But uh, basically, our, our VC backers said that that name is way too specific for what you're looking to do. So <laughs> you gotta change it. So Zodiac was kind of iteration number two. <laughs> and uh, yeah, the new firm, uh, yeah, Theta Equity Partners. So oh, like cool. the uh, like the Greek letter. Oh, great, great. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, can you, for our audience, can you help us understand and could you explain CBCV? Yeah, the fundamental premise behind CBCV 
is every dollar of revenue has to come from a customer that has been acquired and is making purchases with some spend associated with the purchase. And if you just kind of sum up all those uh, spends across all the customers, that has to give you revenues. And so when you talk about you know, the KPMGs of the world, looking at traditional financial statements, you know, basically what we're looking at there is just total revenue. And what we're saying is, sure, it's really helpful to know what total revenue is, but it's even more helpful to, and more diagnostic to be able to break it down into all of the underlying customer behaviors that brought that revenue about. You know, customers being acquired, staying with the firm, placing orders, having some spend associated with the order, and then having that spend flow through into variable profits. And when you look at the world that way, uh, you can be able to uncover value that um, may not be quite so evident if you were just looking at traditional financials. And so you could have companies that are losing a significant amount of money who we would infer would be significantly you know, very, very valuable uh, because we can understand that, you know, say, uh, you know, the underlying customer unit economics are looking good. Now, can you, so, can, yeah. And Dan, can you give us an example of, of, of something off the top of your head that could reflect an example of CBCV? Yeah, we've done it. Uh, there's a handful of analyses. When you talk about marketplaces, you know, we've done a number of analyses of, of marketplaces, including Lyft and, and Farfetch. Uh, Farfetch is a luxury retailer. Obviously, Lyft is you know, far better known. Um, but the, the premise behind both companies is that the, the company itself is kind of a middleman. You know, they operate between the buyers on the one side and you know, really the, the sellers on the other. It just depends on the product or service that's being offered. So what was interesting was in both of those cases, the companies were significantly unprofitable, but we saw that the underlying repeat behavior of the customers at both firms, uh, specifically for us with Lyft, it was the riders. And then at Farfetch, it was with the buyers, uh, that they tended to come back. And not only did they come back, but they actually over time, they tended to expand the amount of business that they did with the firm. So even though they were losing money, a lot of the reason for that was because the firms were spending a lot of money up front to bring in new customers. That tends to be you know, fairly expensive, but they were then getting these uh, very profitable repeat purchases from existing customers. And so you know, we were just basically uh, doing this exercise where we said, you know, let's train a series of statistical models for future customer acquisition, retention, ordering, and spend. And we could just see that the proportion of, of profitable repeat orders would continue to grow. And so assuming that these companies were able to, to penetrate the markets like they should, uh, they should be able to create operating leverage and grow themselves in profitability. You know, so ultimately, um, you know, we were able to kind of form that more positive assessment because we could understand you know, what the underlying kind of customer-driven drivers of the business were. Um, I guess the final point that I'd make, you know, just to kind of round out those two examples, in the case of Farfetch, we ended up inferring that their IPO price was too low, that uh, actually they were worth more than the market was describing them at the time of the IPO. Uh, for Lyft, we, we inferred that they were uh, a very valuable firm, but not quite as valuable as uh, the public markets had been suggesting. So in one case, we we were bullish in one case we were bearish you know obviously it doesn't mean that we're always going to assume that companies are you know undervalued but uh, you know i'd say the underlying framework i think you know holds very very nicely 
whether we're talking about marketplaces or whether we're talking about more traditional businesses that you know, primarily uh, operate on one side of the market. Are you finding Wall Street or in Canada Bay Street as, as it's more uh, known um, that they're willing to, to actually use something, a model like this in, in industry to, for valuations? It's, it's still, uh, I'd say, an underappreciated way of looking at the world. Uh, but I would say that we now have uh, basically spoken with a number of sell-side investment banks. Mm. And some of them, you know, like sell-side equity research analysts, are, are featuring our measures and analyses in their reports. So I think we're seeing a lot of progress. Um, I'd say the other area which has been very promising, uh, for those who follow me on social media, I'm kind of like a bird watcher when it comes to customer disclosures. And so we have all these companies that have been going public recently and in their pre-IPO prospectuses and their S1 filings. You know, I'll just kind of take a once through to see you know, what, what they're putting in there. And very frequently now, I'd say it's more the norm than not that we see a whole bunch of really nice uh, customer disclosures in the filing. And so while that's not specifically customer-based corporate valuation, uh, it's definitely, it's the fuel that we need. It's the data that we need to, to be able to run the models. And the fact that we're seeing those measures come up with so much more regularity, I think it's a testament to people looking at the world uh, increasingly this way. And, and is there a specific barrier? I mean, when you're talking about how data is now becoming, you know, more disclosed and so on, but is there a specific barrier that would prevent some of the research analysts out there or the equity analysts to, to being wanting to use such a model? Yeah, I'd say the, you know, the, the biggest one, well, I'd say there's two. Uh, the first is data availability. And I think, you know, obviously, you know, what you're talking about, uh, primarily about grocers, you know, this can be a real issue at companies in general that have a lot of uh, physical brick and mortar presence. And so, you know, when, when we're thinking about that regional grocer, uh, there's just some additional work that we need to do because if a customer comes in and pays in cash or maybe even pays in card, just depending on the privacy, uh, you know, the privacy protecting mechanisms that the company has in place, the company won't necessarily know who that customer was. And so obviously, you know, everyone's trying their best to be able to tag and track more and more of what their customers do. Um, but you know, ultimately, uh, the smaller the proportion of orders that you can link back to people in your customer file, uh, the harder it is to be able to use this. Or essentially what you need is you need some way to be able to probabilistically attribute those orders to, to customers in the file. But, but if you have to do all sorts of you know mathematical gymnastics, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, then suddenly that becomes a bit harder to put, say, in like SEC filings. Right, right. So, yeah, so I think that that's probably, you know, from a data standpoint, that's probably the biggest issue. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, there's the other kind of somewhat small issue of, actually getting people to you know kind of embrace the methodologies that we would need to run these models so yeah i think we can all kind of philosophically agree revenue comes from customers there's this decomposition um you know but you know sometimes the math can be a little bit hard and so there's kind of an education process that we need to go through where you know we kind of train the next generation of analysts to be able to to use these methods and actually be able to crank out evaluation this way and because we've kind of done it the standard way, you know, the traditional way for so long, uh, it, it's going to take time to, for that change to take place. So, yeah, I think that um, there's enough competition in the marketplace now that 
you know, we will see this change, you know, over the next bunch of years, but you know, ultimately, you know, there is some inertia that we're going to need to go to, to kind of overcome. And that's great. And I have this, this just a question for you. You know, this industry in, in food retail has, I would say a strong presence of a lot of unicorns, you know, companies that have valuations or north of a billion dollars. And I know that you've done a tremendous number of uh, reviews of these of companies that have gone public and so on. What do you, what do you think is just driving these valuations for these companies and, and where they're raising tremendous amount of capital? Yeah, for one, I think um, there's the need for that capital that there are, you know, a lot of these companies are losing a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, obviously what they would say is they're making investments in their own future growth. And as long as they're able to acquire customers that have positive customer lifetime value, then in theory, they really should be making those investments. But it does mean that they need to raise capital. And so the fact that you're seeing these companies raise these very big rounds in part is because, you know, they need the money. <laughs> um, in terms of being able to get very high valuations, you know, we would say that's a function of, you know, the underlying unit economic health of the business. You know, I'd say the good thing is, you know, almost everyone would agree the the market size that we're talking about here is going to be tremendous because we are talking about, you know, people buying food. And, you know, obviously people spend not only a lot of money on food, but it's also um, a very regular purchase. And so if you do have a way of being able to you know, tap into kind of the regular ongoing needed consumers, um, you, know, you can very easily see how customer lifetime value can end up being very large. So you know, I think, you know, for them, the big question then is being able to show that the model scales very well, you know, that they're able to, uh, at least when they're at scale, uh, turn a very strong economic profit on each new customer that they bring in. And uh, I think that they do rely very heavily on selling a story of, of network effects, that the bigger that they get, uh, the easier it is and the cheaper it is to bring in customers and the more customers that they have, you know, the easier it is for them to bring on board uh, suppliers for cheaper. And there's kind of this virtuous cycle that can happen. So I think specifically with marketplaces, uh, you know, because of the, the prevalence of network effects, uh, it's very easy to kind of say, well, you know, if this company does end up making the model work, uh, they'll be tremendously valuable. Uh, so I think the big question then becomes, you know, can they get to that scale? Um, when you're talking about a more traditional one-sided market, uh, every business has some element of network effects. You can always kind of negotiate a little harder with your suppliers, et cetera, et cetera. But the, the intensity of those network effects is much lower. And so it's a little bit easier to rely on kind of more standard traditional ways of you know, thinking about valuation in the customer. Um, so, yeah, I think that, you know, that compare and contrast is why you know, we're seeing um, big rounds being raised and, uh, and, and oftentimes it's some fairly high valuations. Absolutely. And I got to think, you know, if I take Instacart as a comparison, because of the strength of their network effect, the more push they have and pull against against the vendors, the CPGs, which could be to their benefit, but it's also probably a significant detriment to the grocery retailers themselves. And, yeah, I mean, they get a lot more negotiating leverage. You know, so absolutely. Suddenly, yeah, I mean, they, 
they can negotiate much stricter terms. Obviously, they can kind of maintain their commission rates or even expand them. Then they pitch themselves as a new customer acquisition channel, you know, in their own right. They're not just simply a means of being able to get, you know, your order from from Whole Foods uh, without having to go into the store. You're getting whole new people who never would have gone to Whole Foods. Uh, so to the extent they're able to teach you know, to, to, to preach that, uh, you know, they're, they're definitely able to extract a lot more surplus from, from those retailers. Absolutely. Now, could this model apply itself to a publicly traded grocery retailer like a Kroger or a Safeway Albertson or so on? Uh, it definitely could. Um, I say there's a few different ways I would think about it. You know, so for one, there's kind of the, the disclosure question, which I've you know, kind of been alluding to a few times now. So what can Kroger put in their filing? Well, for one, they can put in figures about uh, their member base. You know, so to the extent that they've got loyalty programs, they can talk about the activity of, of the members of the program. Uh, there's a lot of apparel retailers that are doing a similar thing. They have the same sort of issue that they can't tag or track everybody, but they can and do provide uh, figures about the members. And for the companies that are, are more successful, uh, actually they've gotten to the point where you know, they'll have 90% or more of the sales coming from members. And so you know, people can basically say, you know, it doesn't represent every single person, but it is representing the vast majority of the business. And so I can be able to take all those figures that, uh, that you're providing me about the loyalty program and just kind of generally treat that as, you know, a, as the business, you know, plus or minus a plug. Um, so I think you know, from a disclosure standpoint, I would uh, hope that uh, regional and other grocers would do the same thing. Uh, when it comes to investing, obviously, if the members represent 90, 95% of revenues, excellent. You can just basically plug those figures right in and use the sort of methodology that you know we will very regularly use where we take those SEC disclosures and use them to back our way into customer retention, customer lifetime value with the acquisition costs, et cetera. Uh, if you don't have that level of disclosure, uh, typically what we'll do is we'll go to you know, what we call alternative data sources. You know, so this would be uh, credit card panel data sets where you know, essentially uh, companies, they'll... Um, if, if you're working with mint.com or something like that, it's implicit in their terms of service, they say, we'll sell your data on. And uh, and these firms basically can see kind of your credit card statement for like, you know, four to six million people over many years. And so I can see directly, you know, the Kroger purchases on the credit card statement. I can see that over time. And so I can basically use something like that uh, to help drive my model and see, you know, customer retention even if that customer was making that credit card purchase off of the loyalty, you know, off of the loyalty program. So yeah, so data sources like that can be another way to kind of back your way in when you're using that in conjunction with, you know, whatever traditional financial measures like those companies may be providing. That's great. Thank you so much. Uh, subject matter is very enticing. How do people get a hold of you? Uh, the best two places to get a hold of me, uh, one is on LinkedIn. Uh, so if you just search Daniel McCarthy Emery, uh, you'll, you'll pull me up. Uh, obviously, we've got the LinkedIn uh, link down over here too. Uh, Twitter is the other big one. So you know, I'll, I'll typically um, post on both, but there, I'd say I, I post with more regularity on, on Twitter. So D underscore McCarr, M-C-C-A-R. That's, that's where you can reach me there. 
Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And Mark, how do people get a hold of us? Yeah, thanks, Dan. Uh, that was great. Um, you can get a hold of us at uh, digitalgrocer.com. Uh, we'd love to get your feedback. Uh, make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel. Hit the like button so you get notified anytime there's uh, a new show. Uh, you can also reach us at mercatus.com. Folks, don't forget to tune in to our next show, which I'm sure we're going to be tackling a riveting subject. Peace out. <laughs>